You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Alrighty, guys, it's been a while since I put out a podcast. Happy Hump Day. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Today, we have a really cool story. It's not a great story because it actually is about something bad that happened to an individual but uh, the story in itself is cool we're going to be speaking with Kyle Dunman from Montana and he's going to talk us through his first ever whitetail buck hunt and the, the story that kind of leads up to this buck hunt something bad happened and uh, it made him hunt whitetail deer uh, he had to pass up some other things that he loved to do um, he was able to hunt whitetails uh, it gave him the opportunity to hunt a whitetail buck and uh, that's what today's story is about and uh, kind of revolves around an injury that he had that made him shift his focus and that's that's all I'll say about the podcast. I'll let Kyle do the rest. Man, I'm back from the ATA show. Really good show. The best part about that entire show is that you get to see a handful of people in the hunting industry that you like and uh, that you you know you love to run into, catch up with them, talk bullshit for a while. And uh, that's that to me is the best part about it. This particular ATA show was. Uh, for me was actually more about business uh, and unfortunately less about content and uh, I feel like a pile of crap because I only posted like five or six Instagram pictures about the ATA show but here's what I will tell you is that just like last year my buddy Ryan went and he shot a lot of the bows that were on the market and we're going to be doing a bow review podcast coming uh, probably in the next, uh, oh, I'd say a couple weeks, as well as this Friday, I'm going to be launching a podcast that I'm going to be doing with Justin Czar from bowhunt, uh, bowhunter.com, and uh, you might know him from Bowhunter Die web show, but uh, basically what we're going to be doing is going to be kind of covering the ATA show, recapping, and then I'll point you guys in the direction to bowhunting.com, and uh, you can uh, take a look at all the videos that they uh that they launched but yeah we're going to do some ata recap videos coming up in the near future so keep an eye out for that uh let's see today we're going to be talking about ozonics now i tell you what one one thing that stood out to me at this ata show was ozonics 
was not there. They went direct to consumer. So basically what that tells me is they're looking to be they're, they're looking to make some changes and some good changes as far as probably price is concerned. I don't know if the prices are going to move at all, but uh, I tell you direct to consumer uh, especially for a product, specialty product like Ozonics is is, is a very good thing and it's going to allow them to probably play with uh, their unit, play with their pricing a little bit and probably save that uh, that uh, savings onto you guys. Um, so keep an eye out for some big things coming from Ozonics, man. I tell you what, another thing about the ATA show, a lot of companies out there throwing out ozone technology. Uh, I would say there's five or six different companies. And let me tell you that as far as the hunting is concerned, Ozonics was the first to do it in the hunting industry. So, uh, be sure to check that out. And man, what else? What else? What else? I think we're good to go, man. Uh, let's get into today's podcast with Kyle Dunman. Dunman, I'm an idiot. Kyle Dunman from Montana. All right, on the phone with me right now is Mr. Kyle Dunman. How you doing today, Kyle? Pretty good. How about you, man? Uh, I can't complain. Uh, I just got back from the ATA show. It's Martin Luther King Day when we're recording this, so I don't have to work. And uh, so I figured I'd try to pack in as many podcasts today as uh, uh, as humanly possible. And you're on the short list. And uh, you reached out to me, and you had a pretty unique kind of story. It, not necessarily a fun story, but a unique story. And I felt that uh, the listeners would like to hear that. So before we get into all that, um, why don't you tell everybody where you live and what do you do for a living? Uh, my name is Kyle Dunneman. Um, I live in Shepherd, Montana. It's uh, about oh six seven miles east of Billings. Okay. And what and, do you, what uh, do you we're, do? We're construction for a living. Okay. All right. Uh, might be having to change that up here soon with the injury I've had. So going to be going back to school and starting from square one again. Gotcha. How old are you? Just turned 27. Okay. So you're, so you got time to recover. It's not like uh, you're some like 55 yeah. year old who's been working a job like that for a long time and then has a, a big, you know, a big accident and then they have to change their entire life. Um, and, and I guess how long, I mean, so West, you're West of Billings, Montana. Uh, so would you consider that or East of Billings, Montana, about yeah. six, seven miles, is that considered what you would consider Eastern Montana? Yeah, it's, uh, kind of right on the, the edge of Eastern Montana, I'd say. Okay. So you're getting kind of creeping in towards the central part of Montana. Yeah. Okay. And then talk to us a little bit about the terrain, the animals that you, you typically hunt. And uh, because, you know, everybody, you look at Montana, it's so big and it, and it has everything. You know, it's got, it's got the plains, it's got the, the big rolling hills, and then it even has the mountains, right? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's beautiful here. Um, you know, you could, you could really find anything, any kind of terrain you want to around here. Um, I could look out my porch and, and look to the south, southwest and, uh, you know, see Red Lodge and the, the Beartooth Mountains over there. Um, just north of me, about 10 miles, they have uh, what they call the Bull Mountains, which uh, aren't very, they're not really mountains per se, I would say. Um, you know, I got a lot of Ponderosa Pines and cliff faces and stuff up in them uh quite a few elk up in there um but right around where i am we're uh up off the yellowstone river just a little bit so we got river bottoms and then uh you know just the other side of me we got a lot of sage flats and coolies and then a bunch of creek bottoms that are full of russian olives so gotcha. definitely a big variety Gotcha. So 
what kind of uh, animals do are are in that area that you hunt? Oh, just about everything that's in season. Right. Um, right here, close to the house, you know, we got mule deer, white-tailed deer, antelope, elk just north of us, um, a few black bears. Uh, them are more towards the mountains, though. Uh, a lot of mountain lions, stuff like that. Right. So, do you ever run into any moose? You know, I haven't here recently. Um, over at my whitetail doe spot over by Three Forks, you can uh, get six whitetail doe tags per person. And that's right up off of the, uh, the Madison River over there. And there's a lot of moose over there. Nice, nice. But uh, So, of all those species that, uh, you know, you you have access to in Montana. Do you find yourself gravitating towards a particular animal to hunt? Oh, I'd, I'd say definitely my number one animal would definitely have to be elk. Elk. Okay. Okay. And is, that, is that something that you try to do every single year then? Yep, definitely. Okay. So, you know, Unlike a lot of, you know, like this is majority of the people that we talk to on this uh, podcast, they're whitetail hunters, right? And they their year kind of revolves around whitetail. But I'm a resident and I can shoot a whitetail buck every year in Iowa. Now, for you, you know, in certain parts of uh, some of those western states, that may not be the truth depending on what area that you want to hunt. Are you in a, do you hunt elk on like a, a general zone where the, the t- tags are over the counter or do you have to apply even as a resident? Um, my main elk hunting spot is up in uh, what they call the break. Yep. It's uh, right off the Missouri break, Missouri river and uh, Fort Peck area up there. Yep. Um, it's pretty, pretty high draw odds for me as a resident. I think it's something crazy like. 78% chance of drawn over but, uh, in the, and that's just in one year. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause I talked and with, a, I, I talked with a guy in Western Montana uh, and he hunted uh, certain parts of the breaks as well. And the zone that he hunted, it took him nine or 10, no, no, excuse me, 11 years to draw a tag for that, that part. Right. There's definitely some uh, really coveted tags up there. Um, and that's with the archery only tag. Yeah. Yep. That, uh, I was talking about the, uh, I think the rifle tag is, I I don't know if I want to put out a number. I think something like a 2% chance of drawing a rifle tag as a resident. <laughs> Man, that's ridiculous. So, yeah. So you're an archery guy. You're, you, you, you would go after that with a bow right yeah definitely okay so is that something that so far you've drawn every year or have there been years where you haven't been able to go out and and hunt an elk um i've drawn it uh i've been up there the last few years um wasn't able to hunt it this year obviously but uh this year i put in for a little different tag up there. I put in for one up on the north side. And uh, I was able to end up, since I wasn't able to go, I was able to donate that tag back to the state. And they um, have a list of veterans. Oh, awesome. That is for that tag. And so then that tag goes to a veteran. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. All right. So outside of elk, um, what would be the next on your list that you like to chase every year? Oh, definitely. That's a close, close one between mule deer and antelope. Okay. Okay. So, so then is it one of those things that as a resident of Montana, you have access to like, a lot of different tags and a lot of different animals? So like, can you hunt muleys 
elk, and antelope all in the same year? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, the antelope tag I put in for is, is a 900 tag, which is an archery-only tag, but it's good for the entire state. Oh, okay. And then uh, all of our mule deer um, in any of the areas I hunt, which is majority of the state, it's all just over-the-counter tag. Right, right. So then you have no problem. I mean, you live out there, right? So do you kind of have a good idea where a lot of these, uh, you know, these animals are living and you get to go out and, you know, do a little scouting beforehand and, and find where they're at and then, uh, you know, go chase them? Right, absolutely, yeah. Gotcha. So then what about your your weapon of choice it sounds to me like you lean a little bit towards the uh the the bow but do you use a rifle as well um once in a while i'll use a rifle um you know sometimes kind of depending on uh how late in the year it gets chasing mule deer right uh might pull up the rifle and then uh when we go over to our whitetail spot it's it's a buddy of mine and his wife and my wife, and we go over as a group and try to put some does down to put some meat in the freezer. And we usually, I'm the only one of us that bow hunts uh, regularly. So nice. Uh, we we mainly kind of go as a family, little little couples get away and go get some meat. Gotcha. So is that kind of a main focus for you when you are? Uh, either mule deer, antelope, elk hunting, or even into your whitetail hunting, are you there to fill the freezer? Or talk to us about what it is you're actually looking for when you when you go out hunting in Montana. Oh, definitely, it's it's uh, you know mainly about filling the freezer for me. Um, there's been a lot of times where uh, I'll shoot something a little smaller because it had a pretty good sized body on it, and then. You know, on my way out, I'll see a buck that's twice as big. And, but that's kind of all right with me. You know, it's it's more about filling the freezer and going out and enjoying the hunt rather than, uh, you know, finding the biggest animal I can. Right, right. So you, you just go out and uh, try to fill the freezer first and foremost, but if you see something worth chasing in the antler department or like a, a, a maturity, you'll kind of change your game a little bit and go chase that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Gotcha. So do you ever go into a hunt or a season saying I'm looking for a particular buck or is it kind of a hundred percent opportunity, whatever, whatever mother nature gives you, that's what you're taking. Usually it's been opportunity, um, but uh, this year was a little different. I was uh, able to use trail cameras for my first time and uh, was able to see some bucks and see them regularly on this place and and uh, really got to know, almost like got to know the buck. Right. You know, know what they like to do, when they like to do it, and and definitely had some targets in mind this year. So that was the first time for that. And that was on the whitetail front, right? Right, yeah. Okay. Now, is or is or was Montana a state in the past that, did they just recently change a rule about their trail camera usage? Um, You know, I'm not sure. Uh, um, this was on private land. I know you're pretty well good to go on private land, but I do know you cannot have them up during hunting season. Okay. So all of your uh, trail cam scouting has to be done before season, and then they need to be down by the season. I gotcha. And then, uh, there's other places, you know, like the CMR and stuff like that, where they're not allowed at all. Gotcha. Is that a public land deal? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So when you do your hunting, and I, I know you mentioned that white ta- your whitetail hunting is on pub or on private ground, but the elk, antelope, and mule deer is that all public land out there, or is that also private ground as well? That is all on public land. Um, 
we got a lot of state ground out here, a lot of BLM. Right. Um, and also, uh, I do some hunting on a program that we call block management. Okay. And, uh, it's, you know, farmers and ranchers, they'll, they'll get in on it every year with, uh, the fishing game. And basically they open their land up to hunters to hunt. You just sign in at a box every morning and, you know, you write down what you're chasing and then uh, give a little survey when you leave the field at the end of the day to, you know, say what you've seen and say if you've gotten anything and, yeah. and stuff like that. So it's a really nice opportunity to to help both the hunters and ranchers out here. Is that is that something that a lot of landowners take advantage of or or not? You know, it seems like quite a few do. Um, there's there's quite a bit of block management up here. Um, it seems like uh, a lot of them real big ranches are all outfitted. Right. So that's kind of locked up, but there's definitely a lot of block management up here. Okay. And then, so there is absolutely no lack of opportunity for hunting, like as far as finding hunting ground out there, because there, there's a lot of public ground or this block management uh, that guys can take advantage of. Right. Yeah. You can. Yeah. There's always places to hunt out here. Okay. All right. Now I know that in certain states and uh, even in a majority of the West, over the past couple of years, that there's been this huge keep it public movement, right? Where uh, you right. know the government's trying to, you know, the federal government's trying to get rid of some of this public ground. Have you ever been subject to that? Where you know some of the ground that you hunt has been maybe federal ground or even state ground that has has been sold to a private uh, individual and that cut off hunting rights? I have not, no. Um, it definitely does make me nervous. Uh, that's a big deal going on right now. I know they sold off a lot of land in, I believe it was Arizona. Just a crazy amount of land. But I've not experienced that here. Um, you know, the worst thing I've kind of experienced is, is uh, you know, a ranch that kind of let everybody hunt. And then somebody else buys it from California and then locks it up pretty much. Right, right. That's the worst I've experienced. Okay. So basically public land, or, or excuse me, private land that you had rights to, you got permission on, and then someone else bought it, and then they kicked everybody out. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I've yeah. had, dude, I, I, I go through that about once every three years in uh, oh, he, here in Iowa where you just got to keep looking and and find new places to hunt unfortunately in iowa i think iowa is only two percent public ground as far as what state you know owned by the state or federal and right and it becomes a little harder to find access especially when you know iowa as as far as whitetail hunting is concerned is no longer a sleeper state right uh, right. Back in the day, it used to be a you know this quote unquote sleeper state, and the big the big rush was in Illinois. Now it's kind of shifted over to Iowa, and the next thing you know, you know you got a lot of people coming in trying to buy ground, and you can't the the days of I still go and knock on doors, but the days of knocking on doors and hearing a lot of yeses, man, that's gone now. I mean, it's a lot of no's. Oh, now. absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So, all right. Back. Yeah, absolutely. So Montana, man, um, do you, do you generally hunt around that Billings area or do you ever go West for, you know, to fill different tags or, or jump South into Wyoming or East into the Dakotas or anything like that? Um, you know, majority of it's around here, uh, majority of my buck hunting and my antelope hunting um i do go west over on the other side of bozeman and three forks uh to hunt white-tailed does um, they have so many of them over there right they're giving out six doe tags per person and 
it's just not even putting a dent in them. Right, right. But then uh, north to hunt elk, and but I I pretty much just stay right here in Montana. Yeah, and because you got everything, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Are there some one thing I always want, and you know, like I'm I'm getting ready to hot, head to Colorado, I think, for uh, elk hunt this year. But another animal that I just am intrigued about is mule deer and just how big their bodies can get and how big their racks can get. Do you have some slob muleys around that Billings area? Um, you know, I wouldn't say uh, absolutely huge um, around here. You know, you can get a pretty respectable four-point and uh, stuff like that, but nothing too huge. Um, my dad, he rifle hunts, and he hunts over in uh, – the eastern eastern side of the state kind of uh closer to north dakota and they have some real monster muleys over there right okay cool man well you're a huge fan of hunting you love hunting it sounds like you love the outdoors and you take advantage of it as much as humanly possible but fate kind of threw a big wrench in your spoke, so to speak. Why don't you tell us you, you had a, you had an injury. Why don't you tell us what exactly happened on this injury that has, that kept you out, uh, of the, you know, out hunting or or kept you away from hunting this year more than normal anyway. Well, I was at work and, uh, slipped off the very last rung of a ladder and, uh, my foot, when it hit the ground, slipped out from under me again on some gravel and uh just completely took out my knee and uh, i ended up having a five hour surgery trying to reconstruct it all and uh things were still having troubles with it but uh yeah it's been a long road i didn't realize how important knees were until all of this <laughs> yeah yeah man i tell you what i blew one of my knees out in my junior year of high school and had to rehab. I blew out an ACL, had to have that one redone. And then my junior year in college playing rugby, I had to, I blew my other knee out and uh, had to repair that and rehab that one out again. And I tell you what, man, my knees are not good right now. I mean, it's probably, it it doesn't help that I sit in a chair all day uh, at my full-time job, you know, in a cubicle and I'm on my butt all day. That's probably the worst thing for me. But uh, uh, I I completely get what you're talking about as far as, you know, you didn't really, you don't realize how important the knees were until, you know, one's not working the way it's supposed to. Right. Yeah. I've, uh, rodeoed my whole life and uh you know that's all i did for for quite a while for working was just rodeoing um riding bucking horses and i've broken all kinds of bones and gotten all kinds of metal in there but after all of these years my knees were still good to go until now man but i'm kind of crossing my fingers and hoping we just replace it that's uh kind of what it sounds like we might be ending up going with as a full knee replacement as a 27 year everybody old. I've talked to yep man everybody I've talked to though says they just love them yeah yeah so when did you when did you fall off this ladder what time of the year was it it was uh June right in the beginning of June okay right in the beginning of June in 2017 yep okay correct so I, I mean, if you're if you're a hunting freak like I am, man, you you are you're thinking about deer hunting absolutely all the time, right? And then something right. like this happens to you. Um, what was the first thing that went through your head when you know you slipped, you fell, you hurt yourself, uh, and then you you know you went into this five hour surgery, you came out of it. What uh, I mean, what were you thinking at this point? Um, you know, my first thought was I'm going to be cutting it pretty close for elk season. Yeah. But, uh, and there's a lot of hiking, chasing elk. And so you felt at that point, you were kind of hopeful that, 
oh man, this surgery is going to fix everything and I'm going to be able to make it, uh, elk hunting. Oh yeah. I was, I was completely naive to it. Um, they had me with no, no weight on the leg at all for the first six weeks after surgery. So I was on crutches for the first six weeks. Okay. But then I was kind of thinking, you know, maybe I'm just good to go right after that. And, uh, you know, definitely was not the case. Right. So, and then start August, I started to really realize, you know, this, this isn't going to be happening this year. Right. So, I mean, did they have you doing any kind of rehab or was it just like, it's bad enough to where you are going, you're, you're straight up isolated and there's no weight on it at all. So which kind of translates into you're sitting on your butt a lot. Yeah, for the first first six month or six weeks, I was I was doing nothing, and uh, it it was absolutely awful. There's only so much you can watch on TV, and yeah, only yeah. so much reading you can do. But after that, I was able to uh, start rehab and uh, you know start to get out a little bit. Um, was on a cane, right? But uh, was still able to get out and do a little catfishing and and right. stuff like that just to get me out doing something. So after that no wait period of six weeks, I mean, is that when you started your therapy, or were you doing therapy during that whole six weeks uh, that you were supposed to be laying off of it? Um, during that six weeks, we did uh, some minor therapy, um, mainly some stretches and stuff where I wasn't having any weight on it. And then uh, after that is when we started to put a little weight on it and tried to start strengthening it up. Okay. Um, and then how was that going? Was it difficult for you? I mean, were you having to do any type of um, – I mean, for me, I had one knee surgery to, uh, I rehabbed from that was pretty easy. I mean, I, I breezed through it. And then the next – Re, the next rehab on my knee was very difficult because there was more damage to it. Um, had you had you ever had to rehab back from anything before, or had any like broken bones, or uh, I mean, from from rodeoing or anything like that that you had to you know heal from, and it took a while. Uh, definitely some hips and shoulders, um, stuff like that. Nothing too major, you know. Uh, you know some most of the injuries I've had were able just to put, put some metal in there, screw it back together and give it a couple weeks and then get back on. So, uh, I would say this has definitely been the most extensive injury I've had it. The, the rehab part was definitely a struggle. Um, definitely very painful. Uh, but, uh, you know, I could feel it getting stronger and stronger but I could still feel that things in there just weren't right. Um, I've never been able to get the swelling down since the surgery. And uh, so now we're just waiting on another MRI. So Right. Okay. So rehab didn't really go um, as planned, right? Your knee didn't heal like right. it was supposed to. Um, and it sounds like you were doing everything that you could to try to get back on that as far as, um, I guess, do, doing the rehab like you were supposed to. Was there ever a mm -hmm. time where maybe things weren't going right and you just said, screw it, like threw down the cane and tried to walk on it and like walk it off and, you know, just say, maybe I just need to get back into the swing of things and quit like quit babying it. Oh yeah, I definitely, uh, you know, kept trying to go out and do stuff and, uh, you know, it didn't, didn't make it hurt really any worse at the time, but it definitely, uh, didn't feel any better. Right. You know, I was, I was just kind of thinking maybe it might fix it, but, you know, kind of like what you were saying, walk it off. There's a lot of things where, so you could just walk it off and you'll be all right. So. Right. Right. And that didn't work man right no not very well no all right so then 
you, you know, you, you kind of came to a realization that, man, I am going to be missing a majority of the hunting season and, and I'm going to be missing doing what I absolutely love when, when that realization hit you, I guess, what, what, what was going on in your head? What was your thought process like? Well, uh, you know, my first thought process was, was, you know, how am I going to adapt to this? You know, there's still got to be a way I can hunt somehow. And, uh, I was thinking, you know, maybe I could mainly just focus on shooting a bunch of does, you know, but then I got to thinking, well, that place I have full of tree stands and there's no way I'm going to be able to climb a tree. But then I got I got to remember, and there's a place just down the road here where I went shed hunting last year. And I found this really neat four-point whitetail. And I've never hunted whitetail bucks before. But I found this neat four-point whitetail with a drop time. And so I thought, well, maybe I ought to go over there and just sit there and glass it quite a bit in the evenings and and see what's going on over there. So I got the, went and got permission from that gal and uh, started glassing it. And uh, sure enough, that drop tine buck was there still. But then there was two other bucks that were way bigger. So I decided, well, maybe I ought to go get some trail cameras. And uh, and it's just a small property here. It's uh, It's about 80 acres. And it's got a little creek bottom running through it full of Russian olives and then up off that creek bottom there's two alfalfa fields and then two barley fields in the front okay so uh, I started watching these deer and uh, got into the trail camera and that was a lot of fun Um, you know getting to see all kinds of stuff on there and I was getting everything from white-tailed deer to coyotes to porcupines and whole bunch of coons and uh, even house cats which was kind of cool we had a house cat that was on there regularly and he would show up about two minutes after these bucks were on the trail camera every single time <laughs> like he was following these deer right so as far as the i'm you know you kind of shifted gears and and you started doing what you could do as far as your injury was concerned, right? I mean, you realize right. you realized that elk hunting was a no-go. I mean, were you and with yep. that being your number one favorite species to hunt, I mean, did that piss you off? I mean, were you kind of were you playing the oh woe is me card or were you just did you just go, you know what? I'm not gonna be able to elk, elk hunt. Uh I need to just switch up switch it up this year or were you just kind of pouting for a little bit? Um, you know, actually, it, it did take me a few days. I was pretty bummed there for for a few days, but uh, you know, then I then I got to got to realize that's when I kind of got to realizing that I'll still I still might be able to make this work, and I still might be able to you know let some arrows fly at some point. So right, okay, so, so I got to I just got to shift gears here. Right, okay, so. Elk hunting out of the picture. Uh, what about uh, muleys? Was that was that kind of an out of the picture because that's a lot of spot and stock too? Or right, yeah, uh, I kind of figured muleys would be a no go um, unless I can catch one on the haystack. Right. So I kind of had maybe sitting by the haystack in my very back pocket, um, and the antelope. That's all spot and stock through the sage flats and yeah. I thought crawling on my hands and knees on on only one knee might not work so well. So right, kind of scratch that as well. So were you having to wear a brace with your knee and use a a cane or a crutch when you were out checking your trail cameras and and I I guess going out and doing some uh, glassing? Yeah, I had a big heavy metal brace on. Okay, and you were using a cane. Yep. Okay, so worst possible scenario, it sounds like. Yeah, it was kind of rough, but okay, you you, uh, you adapt and you're able to do a lot more than a guy would think. Right. Okay. So 
you you realize elks out of the question. You realize muleys are out of the question. You you realize that um, the antelope were out of the question. You you kind of switch to whitetails, and you know you mentioned adapting there. Mm-hmm. And tree yeah. tree stands were kind of it sounds to me like out of the question. So you're from you're you're yeah. hunting on the ground and you're not moving, right? So mm-hmm. so talk to me how you adapted and what your thought process was on this new strategy that you were going to take to hunt these these whitetails. Well, I knew uh, tree stands were out of the question, which uh, even if I was good in this little little area here, tree stands would have been out of the question anyways cuz uh there's a few cottonwoods that are clear off in the distance, but uh, the whitetails were never going anywhere near these big, tall trees. And they were staying tucked up close to them, Russian olives, which there'd be... Uh, do you guys have any of those over there? Not that I know of. They're kind of like a... Boy. Kind of a bushy, thorny kind of little tree. Um, yeah. Have you ever been around eat much uh no actually i haven't okay it's it's a lot like mesquite um you know the big part of the trunk is maybe six inches yeah we have locust trees and we have uh, multi-flower rose which both have thorns on them yeah they're just a small thorny kind of tree nowhere you can more like a bush right okay that you can't really hang hang stands in and uh I'd had a pretty good idea of where they would be bedding from uh, the year before when I was shed hunting it. Um, went down in there and uh, found a whole bunch of scrapes. I mean, just hundreds of scrapes in this little, probably one acre spot and beds everywhere. Right. And so uh, then up off of that a little ways, there's a little stage flat for about 150 yards. And then it dips down and then comes up into the agriculture fields. And they were hitting these agriculture fields every night. So I decided to set a trail camera up in them sage flats where they're coming across out of their bedding into this food. And so, uh, you know, it turned out that was just uh, all the other spots I was putting the camera. It was hit and miss, a picture here, a picture there. And, uh kind of seemed like i finally just put it in just the right spots and boy i was just getting bombarded with pictures right right and is this one of the first times that you ever used a trail camera playing around with it yeah this actually is my very first time and so that's why you're having so much fun because you were able to what just see what was going on when you weren't there yeah i was just like a kid in christmas it was (laughs) You never know what's going to be on them when you come up and and check them out. Right, right. So how did how did that affect? You know, you're bouncing this trail camera all over, and it sounds to me you found a spot that these deer really liked to go. Knowing that information and knowing the lay of the land, uh, where you know where you were at, how were you going to pr- approach that particular area? knowing that you couldn't use a tree stand and knowing that spot and stock was probably out of the question as well. Oh, I, uh, I got to looking at that spot right around where I had that trail camera and there was a big bunch of sagebrush that was probably three and a half, four feet tall and probably eight foot around. And in the very center of this big pile of sagebrush, was completely hollowed out to bare ground like it was you know like god had put it right there for me as a natural blind (laughs) so it just so happened to work out that you had you had the perfect like ambush location absolutely yeah okay so you ended up finding this little bunch of sagebrush so is that in fact where you start like where you set up on this year Yep, that's right where I set up on. Okay. Now, before we go any further, 
what you because you can't run trail cameras during the season, you're running trail cameras, you know, all the way up until the season starts. Then how long did it take you from, you know, when you were getting this information to when the season actually opened? I mean, were you hunting like on opening day, the week? How long did it take you to start having encounters or how long did it start um, until you were in that location hunting from opening day? Well, actually, I had, I had uh, taken that trail camera down about a week prior. Okay. I was trying to be real careful with these deer, um, you know, trying not to leave any scent around, trying not to spook them or bugger them up at all. You know, I don't know how skittish whitetails are. Um, so I was just trying to play it really overcautious. Right, right. So I took it down about a week before, and uh, it seemed like most of my best movement was going to be in the evening. And uh, I was trying to, I hunted opening day. Um, actually, my 27th birthday was the day after opening day. Okay. And so that's always nice. I'm usually always in elk camp for my birthday, which is kind of cool. And when is but, opening uh, day? Um, here it's the first Saturday of September. So okay. this year it was September. And so I knew uh, after I had these two bucks picked out, I figured, well, I better better make it an even more of a challenge. And I'm going to get one of these bucks in velvet. Okay. And then I figured if I don't get them in velvet, I'm just going to sit and hang out and wait till rifle season in November and sneak in there with my bow during rifle season and uh, see if I can't get one in the rut. Okay. Up here, you can hunt with a bow in both seasons. Right. But in rifle season, you still have to wear, even if you're bow hunting, you still have to wear the hunter orange. Right. So uh, this this area that you decided to hunt, right, with this little sagebrush opening, you know, you're surrounded by sagebrush. In as much detail as you possibly can, describe the the terrain of where these, where you felt these deer were bedding, where they were kind of, the, the travel route they were taking and what they were going to. And if there was any like elevation changes and if there's a crick system or, you know, describe this spot as much as possible. Yeah. So there's a, a crick that runs through there that comes up off the Yellowstone river. And uh, it's cut down in the bottom there. Um, just full of rush and olives. these trail, these deer have little like, tunnel systems that they're navigating through this rush and all this stuff is super thick and uh where they were coming up out of there's actually probably boy i'd say 150 foot of elevation change it's kind of uh, a big razorback of where this trick splits off and wise all right from where they're coming up into these stage flats and off each side, there's like a 15 to 20 foot dirt cliff that drops off to this, to the creek. So it was just kind of like this perfect natural funnel of that. If they want to come out and need all this good alfalfa, that's the only way they can come to get to it. All right. It was just a, the perfect natural funnel. And then they'd come across these sage flats and drop down and cross the other part of the creek where it had wide and come up off the creek and right into the alfalfa fields. All right. So it sounds to me like you had a little bit of a pinch point where they were all coming, kind of pinched down into one area. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, and I set up that that sagebrush was about 25 yards from right at that pinch point to that that razorback right there to where they'd all funnel out of and funnel into. Okay. And so you found the location, you started hunting, right? And um, 
when did you start hunting? Uh, how how far from opening day again? Uh, I hunted opening day, um, opening morning. I was planning on hunting that night and leaving the morning alone. But, uh, you know, the wind was going to shift mid-afternoon. And uh, the morning was going to be the perfect wind for me. So I figured I better just go in and, and give her a try. You know, I got to get in there if I want to get one of these guys in velvet. I had two deer picked out that I had wanted. And uh, then I decided to make it a little harder and say, well, I'm going to try to get them in velvet. Right, so right. Okay. I knew so, I get on it. In, though, in that period of time, you know, the first couple days that you hunted there, what kind of traffic were you seeing? I mean, did you did you see these those two bucks that you were after? How many deer came through that pinch point that you were that you let go? Anything like that? Well, actually, I had only hunted about ten minutes. Um, it happened for me right there, opening morning. Um, there was this little buck that we were getting on trail camera all the time that uh, my buddy and I had named Dinkus. <laughs> and he was a little tiny he was like a little tiny forker with two little eye guards that are about uh three quarters of an inch high gotcha and he's always coming up and licking the trail camera and we've got a ton of pictures of nothing but his tongue covering the lens wow um and so he came by and then uh, the next one to come by was the buck i wanted and that was it Wow. So, so it, it was that easy. <laughs> like it just, yeah, he it just was, showed up and like, so he was the second deer that came by the one, the one of the two bucks that you were after was the second deer that came by that night. Yep. Yep. Actually that morning, <laughs> that burn, the very first opening morning, man, I wish, uh, I wish it was that easy, uh, every year. Right. Right. I got to thinking, boy, this trail camera stuff is, is a total game changer. I know right when these deer are going and coming and right. Right. So let's talk, let's back up a bit and you know, you, you get down, you sat in the, in that I mean, were you on a stool or a chair or were you like kind of crunched down sitting on your butt? What was the deal there? Yeah. I had uh, picked up a little stool at the, the sporting goods store, kind of a little triangle kind of stool. And it sat down just perfect in there and uh, was able to cut a few shooting lanes and just worked out perfect for me. Nice. So that first, that first time that you hunt, you were hunting that location, what was your expectations? I mean, did you, did you say, well, of course these deer are coming. I got them on trail camera coming every day. Well, actually, um, the mornings were kind of hit and miss for these deer on the trail camera. Right. So I wasn't real sure. I was figuring, you know, I might see a couple does and I was, I was sure I was going to see that little tiny buck, but, uh, you know, I hadn't had any of these two bigger bucks on camera in the morning for probably two weeks. Gotcha. So I was kind of getting out there and just wanting to see how this setup's going to work. You know, um, right. and uh, sure enough, that one had showed up, but I was not expecting to, to punch a tag that morning. Okay, so when you did see him, you know, you saw the little buck, were were the little buck and that bigger buck together? No, they were actually probably 10 minutes apart. Okay. That little buck came in just before shooting light. Okay. So I could just kind of see his silhouette. And then that other buck came about 10 minutes after shooting light. Okay. So let's see here. So they were coming off the food source back to bed through the same pinch point, right? Right. Yep. Okay. And uh, it sounds to me like I'm making an assumption here. You had really good access to that location where you didn't have to i mean you didn't have to cross that trail at all or walk spook them or i mean you were coming directly into that where i mean it was just it was almost like a slam dunk it sounds like 
Yeah, I'd walked over from some corrals and walked around the backside, um, kind of almost skirted the edge of their bedding area and was able to come up off one of them creek banks and right into that sage spot. So I wasn't coming across that trail they were coming down and I wasn't going near that field that I knew they were in feeding in at night. So it came in from the side with the wind at my face and just worked perfect. Man, that's awesome. Now, when he did show up and he starts making his way, I mean, you realized, hey, man, I, I'm going to get a shot at this deer. When that, What was going through your head? Like, were you thinking, man, I can't believe this is going to work. This is, I mean, this is too easy. Right, yeah, that's kind of what I thought. I was like, wow, this is, this is slam dunk, you know. Um, I don't, uh, I don't seem to get worked up a whole lot over the shot and, and stuff like that. Don't, uh, don't get to shaking real bad, but, you know, I just. I don't know. I guess in the moment, my first thought was, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be taking this deer home this morning." Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. That's nuts. So you you ended up harv. This is your very first ever whitetail with a bow, right? Uh, whitetail buck. White yeah. Whitetail buck. Okay. Now, okay. So you shot him, uh, and what? How big was he? What is? Tell the viewers what he looked like. How old you assumed him to be? Well, um, well, first off, uh, I got an uncle down in Texas that uh, is really big into whitetail hunting down there. Um, he's a super big bow hunter. He actually got me my first bow when I was 15, I believe. Okay. And, uh, you know, immediately I start getting these pictures in, so I got to send them to Uncle John. Right, right. And. I'm just so stoked about all these bucks I'm seeing. And he says, and he starts sending back, that one's too young. That one's only three. That one's too young. And just breaking my heart, man. Um, so finally we had picked these two. He says, you know, them, them two are probably about four. They're the oldest deer you got on the place. Right. And, uh, but first I wanted to say, uh, this deer, he came in at, uh, he came in and stopped at 25 yards. He was in full velvet when he came in. Yeah. And started raking right in front of me. Oh, so, started so. this velvet. You, he so, was, he was cutting his velvet right as you were getting ready to shoot him? Yeah, yeah. Did that hinder whether or not you wanted to shoot him then at that point because he was he he damaged oh. his velvet already? It uh it did kind of fluster me a little bit, but then I got to thinking, well, you know that and he stopped and looked around and this velvet's just hanging down all over. And I thought, you know what? That looks pretty cool. Um you know, the wife and I've already decided. We went through all the pictures and everything and we decided if i get one of these two bucks in velvet we're going to shoulder mount him right and so uh i seen him with all of that velvet hanging down and i just thought you know boy that's that's really cool and uh so he uh went back to rubbing and uh, it was about you know it seemed like forever but it was only probably you know 10 seconds from when he came in to when i shot him and I was amazed at how much he was able to rub off in just 10 seconds. <laughs> That's crazy. But, uh, he stopped and was able to make a good shot. And he went about 10 yards and and then piled up. I was, I was assuming he was going to go down off of that razorback, down into all of that thick Russian olive brush. But uh, didn't even make it there, so that was kind of nice. So I mean, it was a, uh, it was a. Uh, sounds like it was a slam dunk. I mean, it, a really good shot. Did you drop him right? Drop it right behind the shoulder. Yeah, it it went straight through the heart. Awesome, awesome. I've so, actually got got to the heart with with the my broadhead holes in it. That's kind of neat. Awesome, man. Well, so now after you did this, right after you. 
you know, pending how the knee, you know, heals up, you know, wishing the best for you there. But is hunting whitetail bucks now something that you're going to try to work into your uh, lineup every year? Yeah, I'm definitely going to try this other spot because that number one deer is still in there. He's uh, one of the biggest whitetails I've ever seen in my life. Just a pig. Yeah. And uh, I'd stopped I'd stopped seeing both of these bucks about a week before I took my camera down, but I knew they still had to be in there. And uh I've been over there a bunch. My buddy was gonna white tail hunt it. Um my he's actually my neighbor and uh he's the one that we go white tail hunting with also, him and his wife. Yeah. But uh we went over there seven or eight times again and uh We've seen just about every deer there is on camera except for this big buck. He just disappeared. And I haven't seen him since about a week before opening day, and that was in September. Yeah, yeah. So is the Montana season over yet, or uh, as a resident, do you still have more time to hunt? It is over. Um, See, our our regular – well, our, our archery season goes from the beginning of September all the way to, like, usually around October 15th, 16th, somewhere in there. Yeah. And then uh, the week after that is when our rifle season starts. And it ends the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Okay. But there is some, uh, they call them shoulder hunts, um, that go go on. Some of them go until January 1st. Um, some until February 1st and some until, or I mean, February, January 15th and then February 15th, but it's kind of a private land only, um, cow hunt trying to, you know, extend the season a little bit to try to get a control on some of our elk populations here. Okay. So there is still some of the shoulder hunts going on, but that's about it. Nice. Nice. So now it's just coyote hunting for me from here on. Right. So is that is that knee going to play a problem for you, uh, coyote hunting? Um, you know, it's been pretty sore. I've uh, done pretty good this year calling in some coyotes. Um, gotten a handful of them so far. Um, I'm not getting the best of fur prices up here, but, uh, you know, that's all right. It's still a blast going out and having fun. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it does get sore, and then uh, I'll just sit around for a few days, and then I'll go out, and then I'll just sit back down for a few more days. But, you know, I'm still able to get out somewhat and and get her done, so. Well, that's awesome, man. And good, you know, I'm glad to hear that it hasn't, like, completely debilitated you, and you were, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of, it gave you an opportunity to hunt whitetail bucks for the first time and you were successful doing it. So it's not like it's a, you know, yes, blowing your knee out was bad, but, but it gave you another opportunity to hunt these whitetail bucks that you may not have hunted if you were, you know, either chasing muleys, antelopes or, or elk. Oh, absolutely. My wife and I had talked about that. Um, you know, if it wasn't for the the knee, I'd have never even considered hunting over at this place. Um, you know, I'd have never even seen these two real big bucks. And, uh, you know, I'd have never had the chance to, to harvest this great animal that I did. Right. Absolutely. Well, hey, man, I tell you what, congratulations on your first ever whitetail buck. That's awesome. And uh, thanks for taking time to come on the podcast and share your story today. Absolutely, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Another podcast in the books. Huge shout out to Kyle for coming on, sharing that story with us. Man, I really hope your knee gets better and you can uh, get back to climbing those uh, mountains looking for the elk and chasing those antelopes and muleys and uh, getting back to what you were. So uh, everybody send some good vibes towards Kyle. 
Also, huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast, Wasp, Ozonix, Exodus, Lone Wolf, Gearhead, Ripcord, and Bighorn Outfitters. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. Huge shout out to each and every one of you who take the time to listen to this podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Be sure to check out the Nine Finger Chronicles on Facebook and Instagram. Be sure to check out the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network on Facebook and Instagram. I am in the process right now of launching the a new RSS feed, the Western Big Game RSS feed. Um, so I will make an official announcement once that um, is kind of up and running. And then look for some changes to the Sportsman's Nation website as well. Man, I'm trying to think. Uh, I think that's it. I think that's it. I'm not going to get too crazy with the outro today. But if you are going to be in a tree finishing up the season or tearing down tree stands, please wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.